0: Today we're going to look at Psalm 90, and here's my question for you to consider on the screen here. Are you living with an eternal perspective? Are you living with an eternal perspective? Or to to frame it in another way, are you living with a temporary perspective, an earthly temporary perspective? Which one is it? It's going to be one or the other, isn't it? That's, that's all there is, either earthly, temporary, or an eternal perspective. So as we look at, at Psalm 90, we need to understand a little bit, uh, maybe of a background, what's going on here. So let me just quote from the ESV Study Bible. It says this, quote, "...this community lament has some unspecified disaster as its background, and ask God to have pity on His people." And bless them. The title, which ascribes the song to Moses, invites the singing congregation to picture Israel around the time of Deuteronomy as they were about to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land. Their parents had followed Moses out of Egypt through the parted Red Sea, and yet they rebelled so that God swore that they would not enter the land. Well, the book of Numbers talks about what that little introduction just mentioned. So let me just quote a couple verses from Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. Here's what God said about His people Israel. None of the men who have seen My glory and My signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put Me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice. None of them, in other words, he says, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. That's the problem we have as the background to Psalm 90. See, the Israelites were living in defeat and disappointment Death and despair. And so, in the midst of those very difficult circumstances, Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is lifting up his heart to heaven. Why is he doing that here? He's wanting to anchor his soul in something eternal, something unchanging, unmovable, and that is God. So, he's seeking to anchor his soul in God. And this psalm really helps us to answer the question, are you living with an eternal perspective? If not, well, then this psalm is going to give you several truths that will help to bring your focus back to where it should be, back to the eternal perspective. So here's the theme coming from Psalm 90. This is where we're going, okay? We're going to focus on God. He's going he's gonna to bring us back to the eternal perspective. So here it is. Here's the theme. Since God is eternal, sovereign, wrathful, and compassionate, you must not waste your life in temporal frivolities, but invest it for eternity. Invest it for eternity. So we're going to see all those things of who God is. This is just a, a, a portion of His character, that God is eternal. God is sovereign. God's wrathful. God is compassionate. So notice God isn't just compassionate. God is much more than that. God is not just a God of love. And so we we see a well-balanced God here in this chapter. But before we j- kind of jump into this, let me just quickly pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for who you are, that you are eternal, you are sovereign, you are wrathful, and you are compassionate. May the truth of who you are affect us, that we would not be focused on just the temporal frivolities, the temporal things of this life, but may we invest our life, may we think of things outside of this world, think of things that that will last for all eternity. May that be what consumes us. May that be our love, our what what we adore, where our heart is, may we not just lay up treasure on earth, but may we lay up treasure in heaven, with you. And may that uh, may that truth uh, sink deep into our hearts today. So we ask that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers only, and that that you would open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from Psalm ninety. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, there's several truths coming from Psalm 90 that's going to anchor our soul in God, give us this eternal perspective. And the first truth we see in Psalm 90 is this, that God is eternal. But not only is God is eternal, we're going to see things about mankind. We see that mankind is insecure. Mankind's insecure, but God's eternal. Look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Psalm 90 Verses one and two, follow along in your Bible as I read these are the words of the living God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Notice first of all in verse one that God is our dwelling place. God is our dwelling place. For those of you who love outlines, and you love just seeing the organization of an outline, I've put it on the screen here for you. If that distracts you, then just ignore it. But notice we see in verse 1 that God is our dwelling place. Now this is important to understand where Moses is coming from. See, for 40 years in the wilderness, Moses is leading Israel. God's people had no place to call home. And so in the midst of this really nomadic existence, Moses acknowledged that his soul rested in God. He may not have had a a place for, for 40 years that he could call home, but he had God, who was his true dwelling place. And by the way, notice in the text that God is our dwelling place in all generations. Notice that little phrase, in all generations. Now, why is that important? Because notice it's plural, generations. There's an S on the end. And, and uh, that's important to note that generations come and go. But God doesn't come and go. God is constant. He is the one constant in this universe, in the midst of a uh, uncertainty, in the midst of change. There's someone who doesn't. So God's eternal, even though mankind is insecure. Second of all, we, we see here in verse 2 that God is the only God. He's the only God. Did you notice how verse 2 ends? It says, you are God. And just so you can see the kind of the breakdown of verse 2, I'll put it here for you. We see, <clears throat> notice, before the mountains were born. In other words, before creation, you are God. Before the earth was created, you are God. From eternity past, you are God. And then, not just eternity past, notice at the end of verse 2, to eternity future. So from eternity past to eternity future, you are God. What's the point? What is the point the Holy Spirit is trying to make there? Well, here's the point. There's never been a time when God didn't exist. Did you hear me on that? Because if you think about that, and you should think about it, it will blow your mind. Smoke will start coming out your ears if you think too deeply on that. It It will literally blow your mind because God is without beginning, and God is always going to be throughout all eternity future, He's always been. He never had a birthday. Always been. He doesn't celebrate birthdays because he's never had one. He will never cease to be God because he is God. And so, my friends, this is a truth that we should find comfort in. See, why is that? Well, like Moses, we live in a world that's constantly changing, right? The weather changes, your body changes, everything around you changes. But there is one thing that's eternally constant. God is. God is. He's eternal. Moses moves on. He gives us a second truth here in verses 3 through 6. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, So the second truth we learn here is that God is sovereign and mankind is helpless. God is sovereign and mankind is helpless. In other words, the idea of sovereignty, by the way, God reigns supreme over all of His creation. He really has authority and is in charge of everything. And we see various aspects of that here in the text. First of all, we see that God sentences mankind to death. He sentences mankind to death. In verse 3, it says, He returns mankind to dust. So in stark contrast to God, who has always been and always will be, He had no beginning and has no end, mankind's nothing but dust. The Bible says that God created us out of the dust. If you don't believe me, read Genesis 2, verse 7 which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So at the end of our days, God is the one who returns us back to the dust. From the dust we came to the dust we will return. And so here's the point. God reigns supreme over all of his creation, and by the way, that includes you. So we can be thankful here because God is sovereignly governing even the very length of our lives. How many days you live is sovereignly controlled by God. The idea you see here in the text is the number of our days is preordained. It's determined by God Himself. So how long you live is not determined by fate. So We have nothing to fear then, do we? If that's true, and it is, that God is sovereign over even the very number of your days, then the reality is you and I are invincible until your time is up. Until those days are up, you are invincible. There is nothing that can destroy you and, and kill you until God says, that's it. That's your preordained days. You've lived it. Now you get to go home. I love that truth, that you are invincible until God says your time is up. So we see in verse 3, God returns mankind to the dust. And in verse 4, we see that He exceeds mankind within time. So from God's perspective, notice it says, a thousand years of human history is like one day. You know, time is different from God's perspective. You could put it another way in the text there. A thousand years is like a short three hours. Because if you look there in verse 4, you'll see the word watch. Now, in biblical terms, a watch was three hours. So, God's saying to him, a thousand, you know, a thousand years is only like three hours. And so, what's the point, though? God's driving home this truth that He's eternal. Second, we see God subjects mankind to death, and in verse five it says he sweeps away people as with a flood people's lives are swept away by God in death that's how it happens and there's three images that come to my mind as you look at the text there in verse five. Uh, you know in new zealand we get these these flash floods coming out of the mountains when it rains heavy and people have died in flash floods people have died uh, around the world in with hurricanes or tsunamis and those three images have very powerful floodwaters that can do great damage and can actually kill people water is a good thing of course you need it but when there's that much of it, it can be extremely deadly and destructive. I'll give you some examples of this. Several years ago, I was able to go down to the southern part of the United States and help up with help clean up, if you will, help people uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Some of you have heard of that. After Hurricane Katrina hit, well, I was there and and I, I took a few photos, actually a lot of photos when I was there. So I'm going to show you some of these photos you can see on the screen here. This is this is what water from Hurricane Katrina did to people's houses. And there's some other there's church buildings and stuff here. So I mean you'll see it just uprooted trees. I mean that thing just took out the whole bottom and all you got left is the roof of the house. Notice trees uprooted. Some of the houses were were pretty much all gone. That's a big big church building. It's just man all the bricks have just been wiped off. And and in fact, I found the these big wooden pews. They had these beautiful big oak wooden pews, massive things that were that had been pushed a couple kilometers inland. After all the bricks have been taken off the side of the building, the pews have been moved by the water. Just incredible. Oh, and this guy, there was an elderly gentleman. We helped. Uh, we had to rip all the jib board off his walls, replace all the electrical sockets on the wall that had been corroded by the salt water. Yeah, just sad. Taking all the carpet and dumping it out. Well, here's another one. Some of you remember several years ago the the uh, Samoan tsunami. Uh, there was this, th- this is what it looked like from outer space. There was an earthquake causing a tsunami, it hit Samoa. Here's a few photos. Got four photos here. Very destructive. You can see it even lifted up a couple tons there of that, I don't know, a truck, I guess, some four wheel drive vehicle or something there. Lifting it right up, pushing it on top of the building. Incredible, the power of the water. Well, if you're one of these people who doesn't believe that God sends hurricanes and tsunamis, He's not really in control, let me give you a few verses to back up this truth that God is in charge of the water and the wind. Psalm 135, verse 5 says this, "...the Lord is great." Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. He makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind. Notice this. What is the stormy wind doing? It is fulfilling His word. It is fulfilling His word. So just as Moses saw God's mighty wind separate the Red Sea, God uses hurricanes, flash floods, tsunamis, cyclones, whatever you want to call them. He uses those things to fulfill His Word. We also see in verses 5 and 6, God withers away people like grass. He compares us to grass. Of all things. Now you need to understand, Moses spent 40, well, over 40 years. In fact, he spent 80 years in the wilderness, didn't he? And so the early morning dew would cause the small twigs of grass to grow, and and Moses understood this. He saw it for many years. But when the noon sun would come and blaze down on that grass, the grass withered and perished. So that's the same with us. God's comparing us here to the grass. same as with us who always live under the constant sentence of death. And It's important for us to remember. You've probably heard that joke, which is not really a joke. It's actually true. There's two things that you can be assured of, right? Taxes and death. Unless Jesus Christ comes back before your death. Those are the two things you can be assured of. Let's move on to truth number three. Truth number three, we find that God is wrathful and mankind is sinful. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We'll stop there in verse 11 for now. I hope you're observant as you read. And if you were, you'd notice in verses 7 through 11, there's a key word. In fact, there's two words, depending on which translation you're using. Two key words. You'll see the words anger and wrath, which of course are synonyms. They're used at least five times there, referring to God. Why is God angry, according to verses 7 through 11? God's angry because of our sin. So you need to understand something about God's character. God hates sin because He is holy. Sin violates His very nature. So in verse 7, that's why we we see here that God judges mankind's sin. And and He says that we're brought to an end by His wrath. We're dismayed by God's wrath. Verse 7 kind of saying this similar concept in a little different way there in, in that Hebrew parallelism. And so, in the Sinai wilderness, Israel's sin provoked God's divine anger. See, they weren't trusting in God. They're looking at the circumstances, they're, the things going on around them, whether it's the giants or whatever it might be. They're looking at other stuff other than God, and, and they weren't trusting in God, and That's why they had to spend all those years in the wilderness until that generation had died off. And it ended up leading to death. Their unbelief and their idolatry grieved God. It aroused His anger, and it caused that entire generation to die in that wilderness. They weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. So we see that God judges mankind's sin the second, we see that God exposes mankind's sin in verse 8. And by the way, this, this is a part of His grace, to expose sin. And we see here in verse 8 that God's set our sin before Him. He's set our sin in the light. He's exposing it. You should praise God for doing that. And you say, well, what, what is the point here? Why is God telling us this? Because you need to understand that God sees all, including what's inside you. Even the secret sins, the so-called secret sins you think you have, nobody else knows. Guess what? They're fully explode. They're sorry. They're fully exposed in that blinding light of God's holy presence. You don't have any secrets. God knows you better than you even know yourself. Nothing is hidden from God. In fact, you see this truth mentioned several times, like in Hebrews 4, verse 13, for example. It says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. As we move on to verse 9, we see that God shortens mankind's life. Life's, And the reason for that is life is lived under His wrath. It's, it's, it's finished with moaning. You were originally designed, according to Genesis 1 and 2, to live forever. But there's a problem. See, Genesis 3 is the problem. Mankind sinned. And the Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So if it's not for the one who is the life, there's no hope of us having eternal life. So God shortens mankind's life. And so all mankind's days pass away under divine wrath. Human life is short-lived. Even, even as it says there, even up to age 80, if you are blessed to live that long, that's just like a vapor. God describes it like a, life like a vapor. It's spent under God's judgment upon mankind's sin. And so this... Consuming wrath sentences people to live under the sure end of God's judgment. The Wages of sin is death, Romans says. And so, verse 10, we see that life is shortened by God because of sin. Life is filled, as verse 10, with with trouble. We have this limited time to live on earth. For some of you, you might get to live to 70. Some of you, you won't, probably. Some of you might get to live to 80. However that is, God knows. He's determined how long you get to live, and you'll get to live to exact that exact day. But the best we have to show for our lives, the Bible says here, is trouble. And that word trouble, by the way, just means hard work. By the way, that's also part of the curse, is it not? Read Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had to toil, struggle, work by the sweat of their brow, it says, because of their sin. So our lives are filled with sorrow, disappointment, and then death. But in verse 11, it says that God exceeds mankind's understanding. God's wrath is difficult to make out, God's wrath is infinite. You and I aren't going to fully understand it. We don't have to. So the verse asks the question, verse 11, Who takes to heart the full intensity of God's anger against sin? Who? Well, the answer is no one gives God the fear that's rightly due him. Nobody does. Because nobody fully comprehends God. We don't fully comprehend our sin. Nobody understands God's fierce wrath. Because it's infinite. Well, let's move on to verses twelve through seventeen. We see the fourth truth is this that God is compassionate and mankind is needy. God is compassionate and mankind is needy. So Moses prays some some great great things for us to consider. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says So teach us to number our days and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So, let's just take note of some things that Moses is praying here as he's seeking to anchor his soul in God. He First of all, he says, teach us. Verse 12. Teach us. Well, specifically what? What is he referring to here? Teach us what? Well, he says in verse 12 to teach us to number our days. Now, why? <laughs> why would you want to do that? What well, what purpose? Well, he says there in verse 12, so we will get wisdom. Is wisdom important? Absolutely. Very important. You ought to be praying for that every single day of your life. By the way, how do you get wisdom? Well, the book of Proverbs says, "...the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord." You need to know God and fear Him. Well, here's what one commentator said about this verse. I quote, "...man must be taught by God to number his days here on earth because they are few. He must weigh them and value them because God has numbered man's days... So, all men must do the same. Once each person numbers his days, only then will he be able to present to God a heart of wisdom. Man must be careful not to waste his life in temporal frivolities, but to invest it for eternity. Well, if you have not had the privilege of reading anything by Jonathan Edwards, May I suggest you start with something simple. Uh, May I suggest you read his 70 resolutions. You can find them for free on the Internet. I encourage you to read them, digest them, meditate upon them. Let me just give you a couple for your consideration. I have to confess, these are very convicting, and that's a good thing because we need our toes stepped on. We need some flat toes because we get quite uh, set in our ways sometimes here's what he says resolution number five resolve never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way i possibly can resolution number six resolve to live with all my might while i do live number 17 resolve that i will live so as i shall wish i had done when i come to die do you want regrets on your deathbed then you need to live the right way now, then, don't you? Those are quite convicting. By the way, he wrote those when he was in his 20s. Not as an elderly man, but when he was in his 20s. Early 20s, if I remember correctly. And we wonder why people like that were so godly. Because they were resolved to be godly. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a tragedy in the making? Are you a tragedy in the making? You say, well, what? What's a tragedy? What are we referring to here? Well, let me have Pastor John Piper speak. I read a book several years ago that he wrote called Don't Waste Your Life. Very convicting book, which makes it a good book because I had flat toes My toes were stepped on so many times, they were flat after reading that book. But anyway, here, I'll give you a quote from that book. He said this, You may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife or a husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell. If you could have all of that, even without God, you would be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making. A wasted life. End quote. That's a tragedy in the making. Because Jesus said, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? It profits you nothing. Let me tell you about two lives that were not wasted. I read about these in Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. Here's what I read, that in April of 2000, there were two ladies called Ruby. Ruby. And Laura Edwards, they were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80 years old, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor. She was also pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. One day the brakes failed. The car went over a cliff. And they were both killed instantly. Let me ask you, was that a tragedy? The answer is no. Piper says, and I agree with him, that was glory. God had numbered their days. They had accomplished their purpose here on earth. And God says, Ruby and Laura, it's time for you to come home. You've accomplished your purpose. Time's up. It's now glory time. Mark 8, verse 35 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Ruby and Laura decided, I'm not going to save my life. It's not mine. I'm going to give it to God. God says, hey... If you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, then it's saved. And that's what they did. Let me tell you what is a tragedy. This comes from the 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. There's a lot of tragedies in those books, but here's a classic example of how to waste your life. Coming from the 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast part of the states. The man was or sorry, 59 years old. She was 51. They now live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. That's what Reader's Digest said about them. I love what John Piper says about that particular story in his book, Don't waste your life. He says this. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream, to come to the end of your life, your one and only precious life, God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an end account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells! (laughs) That is a tragedy. and People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that I put my protest. Don't buy it! Don't waste your life! We come back to verse 13 of Psalm 90. In verse 13, Moses continues his prayer and he says, God, come back to us. Come back to us. Change your mind. Show your compassion. Have pity. Have pity. We need you. That's a prayer for God to be compassionate. Literally, the verse is pleading for God to return before He returns us to dust. Do you recognize your need for God? You recognize you need Him, you need His His pity and His compassion upon you. You do, whether you recognize it or not. That's a good prayer. Another good prayer in verse fourteen is, say, "God, would you satisfy us?" He says, "Satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love." The idea is. He's, he's saying, bring in a new day. Bring in this new gladness. So again, Moses is interceding for Israel. He's requesting some a, a new day of grace. After going through 40 tough years in the wilderness. <laughs> wow. That's an interesting prayer. Moses had it pretty rough, didn't he? Leading these rebellious people for that long. He didn't get to go on the promised land either, by the way. And so after those forty tough years, he wanted the rest of his of the these years, the rest of years, whatever it was, to be different. He's saying, God satisfy us. But he also says in verse 15, Cheer us. Cheer us. Moses knew the people were suffering. Under God's severe discipline. God was afflicting them, chastening them. All this troubles God's chastisement upon them. It was painful, wasn't it? It's was painful to read it. Imagine going through it. And so Moses prays that God would bring as much gladness as they had known sadness. In verse 15. And then in verse 16, he He prays, God, inform us. Show us your work. Show us your glorious power. Was God powerful? Yeah. Is it good to see that once in a while? Yeah. (laughs) And Moses intercedes again for God to restore his deeds in and through their lives. Imagine walking around the wilderness for 40 years. They... Seems like they've been going in endless circles in the wilderness. Moses wanted that to stop. What a great prayer for us to pray, by the way. Verse 16. Let your work be shown and your glorious power, let it be seen. That's a good prayer. That's a biblical prayer. May that be our prayer, that God... Would be seen that God's power, His works, His deeds would be put on display for the whole world. And then in verse 17, the last part of his prayer is God, favor us, favor us. May your favor rest upon us. May your favor not just rest upon us, may it remain in us, he says in verse 17. That request concluded that God would bestow His undeserved grace upon His people rather than just being consumed by His wrath. And we can learn many good things from Moses' prayer there. Uh, The last request is one that we should pray often. God's favor would rest and remain with us. Moses asked the Lord would establish their work by making them effective and enduring. It's a good prayer because God's the one who does the work in you and through you anyway. And that kind of prayer comes from somebody who has an eternal perspective. So let me ask you, do you have an eternal perspective? Let me ask you this. This might help. You ever heard that saying, aim at nothing? I'll put it on the screen here for you. Aim at nothing and you're going to hit it every time. You ever tried aiming at nothing? You ever shot a bow, an arrow, or a rifle, or something like that? There, there's a reason why there's sights. <laughs> helps you to aim, because you need to aim at a target, because if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it. That's the way it is in life. A misdirected life is a wasted life. If you're... If if you have no goals, the the wrong perspective, then you're really aiming at nothing, and you're going to hit it. Do you know what target you need to be aiming at, though? Do you know what your life should be aiming at? You need to be aiming at the target of God's will. God's will for your life, whatever that is. You say, well, how do I know if I'm hitting the target of God's will? (laughs) Well... Guess what? God's will is right here in the Bible. So read this, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it. Then you'll know if you're hitting it or not. There's two criteria that need to be met. Number one, you must live for what is truly important. What's truly important is what's important to God. So find out what's important to Him, and then you'll hit the target. Second, you need to live for what is going to stand the test of time. What is eternal? What is the test of time anyway? Well, that's a good question. It's Think of it this way. Not original with me, but I read somewhere that what is the test of time is something that's, when you're living for something that's going to last at least 10,000 years. Something that's still around 10,000 years from now, that is going to stand the test of time. So here's the point, my friends. Live for God and live for His eternal kingdom. And by the way, you can do that for to, even today. You walk out those doors, you can live for God's kingdom now. Only a life lived for God is going to be a truly satisfied life anyway. If you live for yourself, you live for the temporal, you're never going to be fully satisfied. So live for the world Independent of God is going to yield emptiness. It's going to yield a hollow existence. You're just going to go from the, the next temporary thing to the next temporary thing, the next high to the next high. Never fully going to be satisfied. So my friends, this psalm is a passionate plea. It's calling us to live every day with an eternal perspective. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, if you look at the whole context, it will help you to understand what the will of the Lord is. Read that whole context. But my friends, do you realize there's only two things that are going out of this world? Just two things. Everything else remains. First is, there's the Word of God, the Bible, the eternal Word of God. And second of all, there's the souls of people. The Word of God, the souls of people, the only two eternal things that are going to go out of this world. And so God's Word, God's people, those are the eternal realities. And so I ask you, my friends, are you pouring your life into those eternal realities if not then guess what you're doing you're wasting your life you're wasting your life i'm not saying don't do other things <laughs> you know we all have to work and we all have to 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 weed our gardens otherwise the weeds you know it's just going to take over we we all have to work and do other things we we have to eat even though that's temporal. We sleep even though that's temporal. We look after our families even though our families are temporal. Right? All this stuff is temporal, but hopefully, even while you do those things, you're doing it with an eternal perspective. So, this is crucial. Because if if you're not having this eternal perspective, then you're living a wasted life. See, my friends, perspective is critically important. See, your vantage point, whatever that is, determines how you see, and and that is going to determine how you live, what you actually live for. This is why it's so important that every one of us maintain an eternal perspective. How are you going to do that, by the way? Well, as this psalm does, it anchors our soul in God. God. We've seen some various characteristics of who God is. And so, the exhortation is, look to God, anchor your soul in God, so you can have an eternal perspective, so we don't waste our lives. He is the one who is eternal. His Word is eternal. So, my friends, by God's grace, I pray that you would see God so you would have an eternal perspective, so that your life would be invested for something that's actually going to last. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Psalm 90. We've seen a few of Your characteristics We've seen who we are. We're thankful that Your Word is eternal. It's timeless. It is relevant. Even though this was written a long time ago, it's still applicable for us today. Thank You for for giving us this revelation. Father, we ask You to open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word. May we see You. May we see mankind. May we get this connection between the two here. Father, give us an eternal perspective. May we not live wasted lives. Forgive us when we do. Forgive us when all we're doing is just laying up treasure on earth. May we see how foolish that is. May we not just be caught up in all these frivolities of of this earthly life. But may we see something that's far greater, far longer-lasting, something that's eternal. May we pour our lives into that. Who You and Your Word, it's the souls of people, may we care about those things. May we care about them deeply. May they sink deep into the, the soul, our soul. Determine how we live even how we worship You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.